1: Our Aquinas 101 program has reached 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. Will you help us reach more souls? Support our mission by sending a gift at ThomisticInstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. No spaces. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All right, Dr. Gorman will introduce our last speaker for the conference.
2: Last but not least, Joshua Hochschild is professor of philosophy and director of the philosophy, politics, and economics program at Mount St. Mary's University in Maryland. His expertise in medieval logic has enabled him to write a book on medieval logic Translate a book on medieval logic, a different book. (laughs) And most recently, um, co edit a festschrift for Julia Klima entitled Metaphysics Through Semantics. That's not enough for you. Um, He's also um, published a book called A Mind at Peace Reclaiming an Ordered Soul in an Age of Distraction. He's, he he has even broader interests in um, social matters, and um, with that particularly in mind, um, I would like to introduce him to you as our speaker on the topic of social evil. Is that the right title? Yeah. yeah, social yeah. evil.
3: Thank you for that uh, introduction, Michael. I think Michael's been to more Optimistic philosophy workshops than I have, but I was at the first one. I don't think you were. Um, Twelve years ago, 2011. So I want to thank Michael, but I also want to thank uh, Charlie. That's where I met Charlie uh, first. Uh, Twelve years ago, is he, is he here? Uh, he's probably busy, like, making sure that we don't have to worry about stuff. Um, Father Brent was at that first one. Um, Julia Klima was at that first one. Um, two people that I, I know many people in this room will remember, uh, fondly, two very holy priests who are no longer with us. Father Katursky, uh, was at that first, um, philosophy workshop and, um, Father Dewan was at that first philosophy workshop. Um, I, I was, um, I think the most junior, um, person on the, on the speakers list and felt, um. Very, very much out of place, but just in awe of the um, ambition of uh, starting something like this. It already, it, 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 even though they didn't know for sure that there were going to be subsequent ones, the flyer said inaugural, Thomistic <laughs> Philosophy Workshop. This is the uh, optimism slash hope of of the Dominicans, uh, and it's been it's been really, really impressive um, to see it grow. So I'm really, really, really grateful. Um, to be here and, and for all the people who've helped keep that um, that tradition alive. I also want to thank Father Ambrose. Um, I, I I didn't ask him, and I won't ask him why he thought of me to do social evil. Um, I didn't I didn't ask for the topic. I didn't choose the title. Uh, I didn't choose the punctuation
4: <laughs>
3: of the title. Um, but I think it's perfect. So I'm very grateful for it. So I can thank Father Ambrose for all of that. Um, how many times have we talked about social evil this weekend? Uh, it hasn't come up, right? All the other topics probably were discussed in multiple, uh, guilt, punishment, uh, sin, vice. Those were, those, those were not isolated to even just one session. There they, are a lot of cross-fertilization between all of these topics. Uh, I guess there was a little bit of talk today about the common good and, and with some stretches, you could probably say that that's uh, related to uh, the topic of social evil. But my guess is that there are even some people here who, who um, started a few minutes ago um, already like prepared to be a little defensive and suspicious, right? Like you might've added more question marks after the title. Is there such a thing as social evil? Um, is that what the question mark is supposed to signify? Um, uh, on the face of it, it's not a, an obvious topic for any kind of philosophy conference. I mean, the phrase doesn't appear in Aquinas. It's not Aquinas' stuff. So, so if, if we were just going to do the format that's very typical of this, like, let me share with you what Aquinas has to say about social evil. We could be done. Right? Um, but I can't even really share with you much about what philosophy has to say about social evil. Guess how many times the phrase appears in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy? Once and it's a trivial instance where it's just introducing a list of things that presumably everybody always already recognizes as, as social evils. It's not really a philosophical term. Um, So I have to do something different to talk for forty-five minutes or so about social evil from a Thomistic perspective. Um, We could we could think of some questions right that would motivate this right. Obviously, we're not so superficial as to just say, oh, well, the term isn't in Aquinas. He has nothing to say, say about it. We, we could ask, what, what do we signify when we talk even casually outside of, say, a philosophical context about social evil? And what does Aquinas have to say about that? Um, could Aquinas have had a theory of social evil? What, what kinds of lines... Uh, would you pursue to develop a, uh, an account of social evil from a Thomistic perspective? What what uh, resources in Aquinas would you draw from uh, to do that? And so that's that's um, my my plan uh, for this for this talk. But I also want to set aside some uh, approaches that would obviously be um, un, unfruitful, unhelpful. Right? There could be um, like a trivially true sense in which. Uh, there's social evil, right? We could say that insofar as we're social beings, all moral evil has social consequences. And so social evil is just that, you know, it, it's trivially true that there is social evil, but we, I guess we wouldn't really need to talk about it because we, we already have a language for talking about moral evil, right? Um, we could also think of another way in which it would be trivially true to talk about social evil, but not very, so not very helpful, um, for, for for us and for our living our lives, right? We could say, okay, well, if evil is just a privation and if there are social phenomena, uh, then insofar as social phenomena have privations, then there's social evil, but it, that that just doesn't really tell us anything, right? I mean, I have four kids, I don't have five, so I have a privation of a larger family than I have, but is that, like, I, I don't know how much that has moral consequences for, for me, for you, right? So So that's not a helpful way in. Um, I'm going to start with a, a, an ontology of social evil or a sketch of an ontology of social evil to kind of get that out of the way, but I actually think there are practical questions and so i want I want to do uh, after after describing uh, a kind of ontology of social evil i'm going to I'm going to try to um, uh, shine some light on the path that would lead the idea of social evil back to sources in Aquinas um, and and so suggest a kind of line of inquiry that could be pursued in more depth about how a a Thomist can legitimately talk about social evil in a way that connects with the other things that we've been discussing um this uh this weekend together um so so a brief ontology of social evil and here's a question that i'm not going to address directly that that you might think is the chief question of social evil right Um, are there are there um social agents. Is there such a thing as a, a morally responsible social entity? Um, a, a corporate personality is the legal way of talking about that. Or a collective uh, moral agency, collective personality. Um, sometimes that would be raised in the context of the question is, can there be such a thing as collective guilt? Um, there's actually a lot of um, literature about that both legal philosophy and and um and moral philosophy um and and although the bulk of the uh, arguments i think are against there being a, um a, a kind of collective moral agency that's not reducible to uh the the moral agency of individual persons um i think there's there's reason to think uh that it's not quite so easy um just In biblical language, it does not seem like God hesitates to punish peoples, cities, families, even all of us collectively as human beings. Um, And I think it's come up in a couple of talks. Um, There's a passage when Aquinas is describing uh, original sin. Um, His account of it is basically um, an account of collective guilt, how you can be guilty of something insofar as you're a member of a community that is guilty of something, and the community is, is actually primarily guilty and you're guilty through in and through your membership in that community. Um, I, I, I think it's y- you could analyze all of that away in terms of a strict <coughs> metaphysics of you know only, only individual persons can, um, uh, can have guilt and, and moral agency. but I, I think uh, we should hesitate to do that too, too glibly. Uh, but I'm not so much interested in the in the question of the moral agency of a whole community. I'm more interested in the question of the moral significance of uh, social phenomena in general, social phenomena that may include communities, um, but don't have to be limited to communities. And there is not a lot of reflection on this in, say, the Summa Theologiae, um, when Aquinas talks about causes of... Uh, causes of sin, for instance. He doesn't even really name social influences of others, um, which I think we would all um, uh, at least entertain as you know, the, the, the different environments we grow up, up in affect us. I think if you go back earlier than Aquinas, it actually becomes more obvious that social phenomena have uh, moral consequences. So if you look at the Republic, apparently to Plato, it was more obvious that social phenomena have moral consequences than that parts of the soul have moral significance um, it was easier to find the virtues first in the city than in the soul because it's easier to think about what makes a city healthy and flourishing and what would make it fail um, and the whole the whole discussion of the Republic which is ultimately meant to describe the, the what we might call the spiritual structure or the psychological structure of the moral agent is metaphorically about um, social phenomena and ways that they can fail and then the things that would have to be done to correct for that, uh, to, to set them on the right path. Right? And the virtues are corrective, uh, originally in the city, the virtues are corrective of, of social evils that need to be, uh, that need to be healed. Um, so I, I also think it's evident in the idea that the human being, we've talked about the human being as the, the rational animal. Um, we've talked about um, uh, human beings as moral agents. So rationality, including will. Um, but the human being is the social animal as well. We are the social animal because we're the embodied rational animal, and so we have to make choices as moral agents in and through our relationships with others. Um, so so even if it might not be a kind of linguistic habit to talk about social evils uh, and then presumably social goods or social virtues, um, I think it is implicit in the Aristotelian idea, the generally classical idea, of human beings as social animals. Um, So what are social phenomena? Um, Social phenomena uh, are not substances. We can start there. But I think that um, even Thomists who understand the difference between substance and accident and what it means to say that something is a substance versus not a substance can um, think that, that this is more meaningful than it is. Uh, to say that something is not a substance, to say that uh, insofar as it is, it has, it has an accidental uh, being, it has an accidental unity, um, does not imply that it's not real. It does not imply that it's not natural. It does not imply that it doesn't have causal power. Plenty of accidents are real and natural and have causal power. Um, and so, you know, it's. I think it's important to categorize social phenomena as non non substances, but they can still be real. They can still be natural and they can still have causal power, even outside of social phenomena, there are lots of accidental unities that, that we think are really important and worth studying. I mean, beaver dams and beehives, right? They're not substances, presumably. I don't think, I mean, maybe someone could have a theory according to which they are, but that they they're, they're unities made of substances, uh, but they, they have functions. The, uh, they have functions uh, for um, uh, sort of in internal parts and structures, and they have functions in a in a larger ecosystem. Right? Even something as trivial as a cloud, right? In the sky, uh, not a substance. I think we can all agree it's a collection of water droplets. Um, but it, it's something. I mean, it's it's real. It really does block the sun. It plays an actual role in the ecosystem. In parts of the world where that it's more cloudy, you can expect certain uh, literally downstream effects of um, uh, you know what, how that affects plant and animal life versus parts of the world in which it's less cloudy. I mean these are really important things, natural, accidental, but natural, real, causally powerful things um, and so the 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 metaphysical clarification I want to make is to allow that social beings are not substances but to but to point out that that doesn't really take them off the table as objects of um worthwhile inquiry and and real consequence uh for uh for for our lives as having um as having causal power um it seems to me that part of the reason that social phenomena haven't been theorized more um uh than they have been um at least say until the 19th century uh, and then you get a new science to theorize them, right? Sociology um, is that um, the, the kinds of social phenomena that there are were just uh, for a long while taken for granted and uncontroversial. There are some that are so obviously natural and um, bound up with human life, like the family or the city, um, that instead of theorizing them generically as social phenomena, we just talk about family or we talk about the city. Um, but it seems to me that there are other, um, social phenomena that are not communities that are also worth theorizing, right? So, um, economic life, right? The, the, the system of, of trade, we can theorize that and it's, it's real, right? And it has a, it, it has causal power, right? Um i'm i'm not saying that we couldn't also analyze it in terms of the causal power of other things acting on each other but it's it it is still something to theorize and something that we find ourselves um say interacting with um the the household insofar as it is involved in economic activity there's that's a social phenomena right and originally that that would that that that's the original understanding of economics is is um the the management of um not the family qua... Uh, organic community, but the household as a a part of a larger system of trade right um, but that 's kind of as far as the theorization of social phenomena went I think for the longest time because there were just a few obvious social phenomena that every under everybody understood, and we we talked about them in terms of their their species, and we didn 't really need a genus to cover them all um, Maybe, in question and answer, we could talk about what changed and why it is that we feel so compelled for the last two hundred years to have to have have a, a more theoretical understanding of social phenomena and the diver- diversification of um, of social phenomena uh, but this is this is my um, my metaphysical clarification, of the status of of social evils. they would be privations in Social phenomena and social phenomena are non-substantial realities. Some of which are natural, and some are maybe more natural than others. And some of them may be uh, even more obviously artificial or or contrary to nature. But insofar as they're social phenomena, they are they are real. And they have they have a, a, a causal power. They are they and they specifically have a causal power that is relevant to our moral life. Because as social beings, we inhabit social phenomena, and they shape our intellect and will. So the choices that we make as moral agents are, I won't say determined, right, because we're talking about free moral agents, but they are shaped, informed, structured, and even habituated by social phenomena. The kind of family that you were raised in will shape the way that you see the world and the choices that you make. The kind of... um, uh, you know, day-to-day, um, social environment that you find yourself in. If you're, if you're in a school, if you're in a workplace, um, the, the, the kind of country that you live in and its expectations, its customs, um, laws, by the way, are social phenomena and they're real and they shape our life. Right. Um, so all of these things, customs, communities, laws, traditions, economies, um, things that are sometimes today social uh, theorized as uh, social structures, um, they, they have an influence on how we experience the world, specifically on the kinds of choices available to us, how we interpret those choices in terms of how we understand them, and how we are inclined to respond to those choices. So that's incredibly morally significant. So, social structures, social phenomena... Social um, entities are a part of what shape the chase the the choices that we face as um, as moral agents. That's enough metaphysics. Um, now, where would we find um, a, a a place in traditional um, moral theorizing to talk about? Um, Social entities and social evils to me, I think the obvious place to do that is in uh, Catholic social teachings discussion of social justice um, and I, I'm sort of interested to know what just flashed through everybody's mind when I said social justice because some of you people some, some of you know uh, what I mean when I say that that's a part of Catholic social teaching and some of you are very suspicious and wonder if it really is. Um, and uh, there's good reason to be suspicious of it. Um, but as a matter of fact, the term social justice comes from Catholic social theorists. As far as I know, it, it's mainly attributed to an Italian uh, legal theorist, Tapparelli. um, And from there, um, sort of made its way to Leo XIII and was first used in a papal encyclical in 1931, Quadrigesimo Anno, by Pius XI. Um, and... Um, you know, after World War II, things got funky, and I think it's kind of a relic of the Cold War that um, Catholics became suspicious of the idea of social justice, or at least some Catholics did become suspicious of the idea of social justice. Um, but there is an authentically Catholic understanding of social justice, and, um, and I think it can be made sense of in terms of the, the traditional Aristotelian classifications of types of justice. Uh, this came up, I think, on the first day Of the conference. So, I'm going to briefly describe um, what Aristotle says about about, um, three kinds of justice. Aristotle says there's two particular kinds of justice. Um, One is commutative justice, and commutative justice has to do with relations between members of a community, how they treat each other, whether they're treating each other fairly, whether they're rendering to each other what is their due. That's commutative justice. Another kind of particular justice. For specific justice that Aristotle talks about and, and Aquinas is distributive justice and distributive justice has to do with how uh, the authority that has responsibility for goods within a community shares those goods among members of the community. So where for commutative justice, I did this side to side gesture with my hands, right? Between members of a community for distributive justice, I'm doing something kind of top down, right? It's about how, how will the, the community distribute to its members uh, different, different goods, different resources, different, different things. They, they can be literally material resources, but they could also be um, uh, other kinds of social resources. It could be like distributing rights, distri- distributing certain opportunities for uh, exercising um, uh, legal functions. Um, so those are the two kinds of, of um, particular justice, community of justice and distributive justice. The other kind of justice, Aristotle and Aquinas, called general justice. Um, and in, in, in a certain sense, general justice is uh, the same thing as all of virtue. It's like everybody doing what they're supposed to do. But when I, when I refer to legal justice, I'm going to make this hand gesture. I'm going to move from the bottom up Legal justice is all the members of the community fully sharing in the work of pursuing the common good together, right? So I want to kind of gathering and lifting motion with my hands, right? Legal justice is legal justice because it means that everybody is being united to the common good under the, the rule that orders things to the common good, which is the law. So not necessarily literally the the written positive law of of that particular community, but it it would include the natural law. It would include everything that determines how people should behave uh, as members of this community. So legal justice encompasses commutative justice and distributive justice. And these are important logical distinctions. But in practice, it can be very, very difficult to isolate an instance where you're only dealing with one right your neighbor uh, cheats you um, and and so you want the contract enforced it sounds like primarily an issue of commutative justice but if you know if you can't solve it between yourselves and you actually have to go to court um, you're you're kind of appealing uh to the, the the public authority to um distribute things differently and that's already that that is that is possible right there's a courthouse for you to go to because uh members of the community have been paying their taxes and and doing other things mostly right except for your neighbor who's a uh, a cheat, right? Um, and, and so by participating in the common good, the authority has available certain resources that include being able to fund the courthouse so that the law between, so, and that's a very simple case, right? That's just one dispute between you and your neighbor, and all of a sudden we have all three involved. So I'm not trying to say that you can always isolate one form of justice from another, but it's an important logical distinction. And I think it's an important logical distinction for clarifying the sense in which social justice can be a Catholic concept. If, if you're suspicious of it, um, if you're like Jordan Peterson, who recently criticized Pope Francis, uh, 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 saying that social justice is not a Christian concept. Um, and actually, you know we all know what he means, but social justice is an analogical term. And maybe Pope Francis doesn't use it the same way that, that um, uh, Jordan Peterson uses it. Um, if you're suspicious of the idea of social justice, the kind of social justice that Jordan Peterson probably had in mind, it's primarily because I think popular journalistic secular terms imply that social justice is primarily about distributive justice. That's when when you're complaining about a social injustice, you're saying some people don't have their fair share. We need to ask some authority to step in and redistribute things. Right. that could be true. That could be part of establishing social justice, that we need an authority to make things right. But in the Catholic sense, social justice is primarily legal justice. Social justice can, isn't a policy arranged from the top down. It's social justice isn't an enforcement of you know, um, uh, uh, how one part of society will relate to another part of society. Social justice is, a, is the unifying Force by which all members fully participate and actively share in pursuing the common good together. Um, I think that's a really important clarification. It also means that appealing to social justice, while it is authentically Catholic, authentically Christian, um, it also doesn't necessarily tell you a lot of useful things about how to solve a particular social injustice in this one particular case or other. But I even think it's implicit in um, the American tradition of, um, civil rights, uh, uh, movements. Um, and it's at least important rhetorically to recall that social justice is primarily about all the members sharing together, and it's a principle of unity, not about distributing shares between people that might, um, in a, in a sense, unfortunately, if you don't have the unity in mind, might in a sense, uh, uh, Increase the sense of division and partisanship. Um, the example I have in mind is Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Right, he was thrown in jail. Um, some white pastors said he deserved it because he broke the law. He's a troublemaker coming down here. Um, and um, instead of using a kind of uh, class conflict or race conflict. Rhetoric and saying, well, you guys had yours for so long, and now it's our turn, and we 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 want our share, right? In, instead of hardening a kind of us versus them, right? King, and, and you know, you could say, oh, this is this is just effective rhetoric, but I think it's I think it's philosophically significant, and that's why it's effective rhetoric. King addressed the 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 white pastors as brothers in Christ and and accused them of misunderstanding their own good and harming themselves by treating other people unjustly and asking them to see that everybody would be better off, not us versus them, but we would all be better off if we could all share together in the goods of society. Again, maybe someone cynical could just say, well, that's just a useful rhetorical trick. But there's a reason why that rhetoric works because King King's letter from a Birmingham jail appeals to legal justice not distributive justice primarily and to the extent that it appeals to distributive justice it relates distributive justice back to legal justice why is it important that rights be better distributed among members well so that they can treat each other better commutative justice why is that important so that in treating each other better they can better fulfill the good of the whole community right so distributive justice is is almost tertiary in in, in the argument of the letter from a Birmingham jail. Right? Distributive justice serves commutative justice, which serves legal justice. So that's, that's my articulation, brief articulation of the, uh, the authentically Catholic understanding of what social justice means um, in, in the tradition of Catholic social teaching. And again, it's not very old. In, in official, do- I don't know if there's if there's any official uh, appearance of um, of the term social justice in ecclesiastical documents before 1931. So it's not even 100 years old. Um, it's obviously not in the Summa Theologiae, but you can you can find in the Summa Theologiae where um, Aquinas differentiates the different kinds of justice and talks about and talks about legal justice. Um, there's other terms that become associated with with um, social justice um, in the same encyclical there's another term that didn't seem to catch on as much and we could leave it to the theologians to worry about social charity and insofar as charity perfects justice on the individual level presumably there's something analogous about how a, a social charity could perfect social justice um, but as far as I know that hasn't been um, pursued as a, as, a, as a line of thinking in uh, theology as much as the idea of of social justice has been pursued. Um, There are other ways in which I think theologians could develop uh, an understanding of um, uh, social phenomena and social justice and their moral relevance to our lives. So theologians have also talked about structures of sin, um, and presumably there's something analogous structures of of vice that we could talk about without the theological overtones Um, and um, something that hasn't come up much in the last few days and I think that's that's also interesting um, is demonic influence Um, so I think it would be possible to discuss the ways in which now we don't we don't have like direct insight into this and so we have to be modest in our judgments of these things but it's not crazy to say that at least in principle, human life is at least somewhat under the influence of fallen creatures other than other human beings who are trying to tempt us, manipulate us, and, and uh, compete with God for our attention. Um, and uh, I think that's a very important uh, path for theologians to pursue. I think philosophers can contribute to that. And I've written a very little bit about um, the at least the analogy of demonic influence behind behind certain forms of social media. But I'm not going to do that um, today. Where I would look in Aquinas to develop a kind of ethics of social evil is in his discussion of prudence. Um, In in the um, second part of the second part, um, at the beginning of the discussion of prudence, Aquinas describes different ways in which you can sort of divide or subdivide prudence. And um, he says uh, that, that uh, one of the ways of dividing it is into its subjective parts. And basically, this is dividing a genus into species. So there's different kinds of prudence, he says. Um, and there's, there's personal prudence. There's um, political prudence, which is the prudence of someone insofar as they're a citizen. Um, there is regnative prudence, he calls it, which is the prudence of someone insofar as they have charge of a community. So it'd be the, the prudence of the sovereign as opposed to the prudence of the subject. And then there's military prudence, the prudence of someone insofar as they are executing war. I don't think this is meant to be an exhaustive list. Um, I read somewhere and I forgot where Aquinas got this this classification from, but I think that Aquinas uh, had a source and and felt like he needed to defer to this as, as something that people talked about, these four kinds of prudence. Um, but um, elsewhere, it, it seems to me obvious that Aquinas believes that the reason you can classify them into those four types is because you can always classify prudence according to the good towards which it is helping to judge what actions should be ordered towards. And those are, those are four sort of obvious social contexts in which prudence has to exercise itself right? In your own personal life, you have to exercise prudence. As a member of a community, a citizen, you have to exercise prudence, political prudence. If you happen to find yourself with authority in a community, you have to exercise prudence in a different way. That's regnative prudence. And if you are in conflict, if you're at war, you have to exercise uh, another kind of prudence. Um, Now they're all species of prudence. So they're not not analogically like stretched forms of prudence. They all come under the heading of prudence. And what does prudence do? Prudence helps you size up the salient um, uh, circumstances of your particular situation. It, it helps you size up what available actions there are to you in that situation. It helps you size up how those actions fall under precepts, under laws, moral a moral order that, that, that would or would not order those actions towards, towards the good. It does all of those things. Right. Uh, And it also orients you to want to order your actions towards the authentic good. Right. So prudence is not just cleverness. It's not just um, uh, the facility at calculating means towards an end. So prudence is is an incredibly important intellectual virtue, and it involves discerning how to fulfill the good here and now. So if there is such a thing as social phenomena that have relevance to the choices we make, and that even have the power to shape the choices that we make. Um, not just the communities that we are members of, but the systems of those communities, the customs and laws, the social, the, 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 the structures, the patterns of behavior, every, every form of social phenomena would be relevant to prudence. Right? Even, even personal prudence, just living in your own personal life, look you should be aware of how your personal life so far has been shaped by social structures and is making certain things appear more salient to you and less things appear more salient to you, and making it easier or harder for you to discern the ways in which the choices available to you fall under certain natural law precepts, etc., etc, etc. So if, if one were to develop a, an, a sort of ethics of social phenomena, and 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 how how to how to make sense of and evaluate social evil, in a Thomistic way, I think you would do it under under the notion of prudence and take a lead from Aquinas, uh, discerning that prudence takes on different forms depending on the kind of community and the and the purpose and function of that community and the role that you play in that community finds itself. If we if we do that, and about how much time do I have left?
0: You have
3: about fifteen minutes. Okay. If we do that, it seems to me that we would classify, we could classify social evils in a number of different ways. Um, I've already suggested, you know, we can classify social entities in terms of, of communities and in terms of parts of communities or maybe systems that inter, interweave different kinds of communities. But um, another way I think that you could classify social evils is according to what way in which they threaten um, the the discernment of justice so some social evils are simply a direct threat say to distributive justice these are probably the easiest ones for us to discern and we get our backs up when things aren't fair right um, a social evil would be some social phenomena that prevents things from being properly distributed to members of the community um, I think that there's good reason to believe that, that there is such a thing, say, as structural racism. Um, I think Therese Corey at Notre Dame has done some really good work on explaining how a, a Thomist could make sense of the idea of structural racism. But if there's such a thing as structural racism, it would be an example of this. It would be something that um, affects the way that the goods of the community are distributed to its members in an unjust way. And, and so um, a, a, an authentically prudent person would be able to discern that that is happening and how it's happening and discern what what would be reasonable responses to that to um, uh, at least mitigate the evil or overcome it or um, or heal it Um, but it seems to me um, and maybe part of maybe part of uh, uh, structural racism would also have to do with commutative justice but that would be another another kind of uh, classification or form in which social evils would become um, salient to our prudential assessment. right? Um, Things that threaten how it is that people um, are capable of treating each other fairly and as um, uh, members of the community. And then probably harder to discern, but uh, still as important to discern, would be ways in which people are prevented from um, participating in, in legal justice, ways in which people are prevented, and it's not necessarily because of uh, relations between members or because of the distribution of goods among members but but uh, for some other reason, why is it that some people are not able to fully share in the good of the community and what can be done about that? Um, that seems to me to be a helpful way to um, discuss uh, some of the complex social, political, economic problems that we face, right? And it also would help us um, uh, clarify that, you know, some of these questions don't have to be a simple yes or no, right? Is there structural racism or not? Um, or is, is is it something that we have to uh, respond to or not? We could clarify, well, I'd, I think there's structural racism in this sense, but maybe not in this sense. And maybe there's something here, uh, but but not here. And here, here's an area where we actually have an opportunity to uh, respond to it um, in justice. And, you know, it would be nice if we could respond to this other, but that might be some other way in which we, we can't right now. That's Those would seem to me to be um, more useful uh, uh, political, social policy type questions than just arguing back and forth about whether there is such a thing uh, or not. Um, it does seem to me that there would be um, another type, of social evil that would be harder for us to get our minds around um, and more important for philosophers to uh, to help people get their minds around right if the if the kinds of things that I've described so far uh, ways in which social phenomena impede um, distributive commutative or, or legal justice there there would also be social phenomena that make it hard for us even to conceive of those forms of justice social phenomena that make it hard for people to conceive of themselves as sharing a common good and acting as as members of a community Um, hard for people to think of themselves as moral agents and i think that there are social structures that do this and one of the best theorists of this actually is alistair mcintyre a lot of alistair mcintyre's work in moral theory i mean he's famous for you know, reviving virtue ethics, right? But a lot of his work is in helping to um, describe how it is that certain circumstances that have emerged in the last few hundred years make it hard for people to even conceive of themselves as the kinds of beings that have the roles in communities in which prudence could even be articulated as a virtue. I'll try to say that again. I'm sure I won't repeat it exactly, but. Um, sort of like a lot of MacIntyre's own speaking and writing. There's no short way to say this, right? A lot of what he's paid attention to in his in his work is not just like, oh, here's how Aristotle thought about it. But why is it so hard for us today to think about it the way Aristotle thought about it? In other words, he's, he's trying to help us understand what are the conditions in which we live that make it difficult for individual people to see themselves as members of a community and thus having the kind of social roles in which it would make sense to exercise a virtue like prudence, which is ordering their activity with other people's activity towards a common good. but some obvious things that disguise that right just like bad philosophy makes it hard for people to think that way right so if 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 you happen to just have been infected with utilitarianism or kantianism then maybe you have a hard time thinking in that way um ideologies make it hard to think that way um uh very very vicious communities uh make it hard for people to see themselves as members of of a community with a common good uh with with um sort of intrinsic uh, rewards for, for seeking that common good together. Um, in an odd way, certain technological developments make it hard for people to think of themselves that way. Right? I'm not saying that technology is evil, but technology has a way of reshaping patterns of behavior so that people can even have kind of hidden from this themselves the fact that they are responsible moral agents and should take more more of a sense of responsibility for the choices that they're making. Um, I think that there's a huge difference morally between, say, um, a character from Downton Abbey who um, knows that uh, contraception is condemned in her culture and has to, like, uh, sneak around and find a way to buy contraception. I think she is culpable in a way, you you know, uh, of of, of committing something wrong because she's doing it as a voluntary agent. As opposed to, say, um, you know, someone who grows up in uh, America today and has never heard that there could even be a moral argument against contraception and is on contraception because maybe when she turned 16 or 18, her doctor just said, oh, well, this is what most people do when they're your age. Do you want this prescription? And she just took it like there's less moral agency involved in the latter. Now, am I saying that that the the latter individual is not a moral agent? No, but I'm saying that the latter individual lives under social circumstances in which her own agency and responsibility for her choices has been hidden from her. The kinds of choices made available to her has been shaped in a particular way. The kinds of things that she's been habituated to want has been shaped in a certain way. The kinds of things in which she's been habituated to... uh, uh, to be averse to has been shaped in a certain way. The kinds of things and ways in which she's been taught to evaluate what counts as uh, good and bad behavior, all of that has been has been shaped in a certain way. Um, and so, I think that is that is a morally significant difference in evaluating the the, the circumstances in which, you know, from the perspective of a, 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 a traditional moral philosophy, right? We have the same act, right? A person choosing to do something contrary to the natural law, but the circumstances matter and social circumstances are huge and shape uh, uh, shape people in ways that they aren't, aren't always aware of. So it seems to me that a really big part of um, theorizing social evil would not simply be recognizing the, the kind of um, what I was calling the, the normal or ordinary ways in which social phenomena impede the realization of justice uh and and uh the discernment of of uh authentic prudent action but the extraordinary ways in which all the kinds of things i've just been saying for 40 minutes or so don't even make sense to most people like they couldn't they couldn't even um conceptualize what it would be to think of themselves as responsible moral agents who have have uh a, an intellect and a will that are ordered to Um, to discern and pursue the good in their lives along with others, and that there's better and worse ways to do that. Um, In other words, the perhaps the greatest social evil uh, that we have to take account of is the the obscuring of practical reason itself. Uh, The social conditions in which it is difficult for most people to take seriously the, the very basic kind of um, moral reasoning that um, that a Thomist takes for granted and assumes in healthy, natural, normal societies, everybody is just doing always, everywhere, all the time. And I'll end it with that. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. So would it be a fair characterization to say that certain kinds of philosophy are social evils based on
3: that? Or am I misunderstanding something? I think that's right. I think Pope's said that. I'm willing to say that. Of the, yeah, the, the, the question is, are certain kinds of philosophy social evils? Yes, I think so. Um, and I think, I think there are encyclicals that say that, I mean, very splendor as much as it's about returning to an analysis of, uh, the individual moral act, right? It spends a lot of time describing the circumstances in which it's important to return to a description of the individual moral act. And the circumstances include, um, ideology, relativism, positivism, and, and just, uh, theoretical confusion in general.
2: Thank you for your talk. Um, so if there are social evils, um, if I understand you right, that's the deprivation of a properly ordered social phenomenon, what would social guilt and therefore punishment be? Like?
3: Well, I said I didn't want to talk about that. <laughs> um I think there's there's both uh, a, a kind of intuitive, natural sense, though, in which we, we accept some idea of corporate guilt and also an important theological sense in which that's become um, a, an important way of understanding Christian teaching. Um, you know, a, a, a company that cheats its customers, that might be due just to sort of one rogue... Um, employee, but the company itself might be held responsible for that. And members, other other members of of the uh, the company might might find themselves like bearing some of the responsibility, some of the guilt of what the of what the company did. Um, a uh, you know a family might hold a grudge against another family for many generations. But you know, we could argue about whether that's totally reasonable, but it's. It's very human we we do think that way um and as i as i suggested very briefly it seems to me the idea of original sin um is that um i mean we didn't eat the apple but we're paying the penalty as as children as, as members of that family the human family we are all in it together um
2: Thank you so much.
4: Um, do you think that uh, passages from SOMA on unjust law can aid uh, our understanding of social evil in any way?
3: I do. I mean, I, I, an unjust law is a law that is is um, deficient in some way as to the, the, the purpose. It's, it's failing to fulfill the, 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 the full essence of, of a law. Um, and a law is a social phenomenon. So that that is probably that might be the place where it is most, um, the, the 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 notion of a social phenomena that uh, can be evaluated in terms of good or evil is is, is probably most articulated in that section.
1: Um,
3: the, the law law is a, law is a social phenomena that can be evaluated in terms of good and evil is probably the the place in the Summa that that uh, that that's most, um, uh, assessed. I'm
0: very grateful for the talk. Um, uh, it doesn't strike me immediately obvious that people in our society don't think of themselves as moral agents. Um, so I wonder if you could
3: say more about why I think that's true. It's, it's probably not a matter of they either do or they don't but that I think a lot of people have a very impoverished understanding of what it means to be a moral agent. Um, uh, impoverished and maybe m- m- misdirected in certain ways. Um, the example that I gave of contraception, there's actually a, a really wonderful essay by Russell Hittinger, and he's using some writing by Christopher Dawson to make this point, but it's I, I, but he's developing it. Um, the argument of the essay is that while some technology is bad because it enables us to do bad things, um, it makes it easier for us, it or magnifies actions that might have already been evil um, and makes them worse, or it or it takes it makes possible actions uh, that are evil that wouldn't have been possible without that technology. That the real threat of certain forms of technology is that they replace the human act. Um, that, that, that they functionally allow people not to be aware that they are making a choice about how to relate to other people. right? Um, so, you know, the person... I'll, use, I'll keep using this example because I mentioned it and it's part of Hittinger's essay. The person using contraception, um, they might be aware of themselves as a moral agent taking a pill. And then because of their environment, they might even think that that's, not, that that's like taking any other pill. It's like a medical act. It's not a morally consequent act, right? Um, if, you, if you ask them to think, okay, but why? What's the goal, right? Well, it's to, it's to prevent having children right um without that technology right that goal would have to be isn't isn't achieved by something similar by like taking a different kind of pill or that goal is achieved by a whole different set of social practices right uh, that involve things like practicing chastity right um and understanding um sexual relations as ordered to and within marriage. Um, but chastity and marriage are not technologies. Right? They're not tools to make sure that people don't get pregnant when they don't want to, right? They're they're part of being a moral agent and 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 living a, a fully human life. And if we have if we have started to develop technologies That make it harder for people to have the opportunity even to experience what would it be like to be a responsible agent making choices like um, how can I be chaste and how can I how can I enjoy the goods of marriage and what is it even to be a husband and a wife if we hide those things from ourselves. Um, That's that's the concern. And that's just one one small example.
0: I I, I find it it quite plausible, you know, what you've said about social conditions that make it difficult for us to engage in certain kinds of prudential reasoning. And I take that, you know, McIntyre's point about some of this quite important. I'm just curious how far you think that goes. And and this is why. So, a couple of months ago, I heard a theologian give a lecture in which he kind of concluded by saying, and he was, he was criticizing modern contemporary social and political practices, institutions and practices, in particular liberalism, and all that kind of goes along with that. And he concluded by saying, we can't be Catholics. It's simply not possible for people who live in these social and political institutions to be Catholic in the way that we're supposed to be. Now that would be to take this very far indeed... Right. Um, so I'm just kind of curious as to how far you think it goes
3: or could go. Or... Well, I, I, it, that sounds like farther than I would go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, I, I don't think we're in Brave New World yet, but I think there's reasons why Brave New World is a, is a compelling, scary story, because it, it, it looks like it, it's just farther down the path of a certain trajectory. Right? And a big part of Brave New World is disguising from people that they are moral agents, right? If you start to feel guilty, right, that is that is a psychological problem, not a moral signal, right? And you should take a pill and remove the guilt, right? If if you start to do something like appreciate beauty, then you've been poorly conditioned, and you have to you have to be retrained so that you, you know, if you haven't learned that concepts like motherhood are are profane and embarrassing, right, then you so brave new world is is um fiction thankfully in which people really have been systematically hidden from their own moral agency and in that world to be a moral agent you have to step outside of that system right you either grow up on the reservation like john or if you're brought back into the world you can't you can't survive there it's too oppressive i don't think we're there yet but i do think that on on a on a daily level, um, not just Catholics, but just uh, old-fashioned Aristotelians have to be constantly asking themselves, you know, not just what, what what's the best choice available to me here and now, but how much peace can I make with the kinds of choices that are presented to me, and what could I do in the long term to change the trajectory so that in the future there are better choices available to, to future generations. I do think that that's... Um, that's part of the situation of um, uh, a, a modern Catholic um, but in another way, that's also just a kind of Augustinian point right that if 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 original sin isn't just a, a a stain on individual human hearts but in all of society right the, the city of man is not the city of God so we 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 always should be aware of the ways in which um, merely human uh, communities are deficient and um, uh, not just manifesting our sin but even helping to perpetuate and um, uh, foster our sin um, but I also think that there are distinctively um, modern ways in which that's happening and I think that's what Catholic teaching, social, Catholic social teaching is developed to respond to. The, the new things of Rerum Novarum um, in, in 1891 on the surface were new economic systems, but behind that also new ideologies about those economic systems. And behind that also new technologies that made possible both of those, both of those things, right? That you couldn't have a new economic system without certain technological changes that changed the way people lived and the way, the way uh, that communities were and weren't experienced. Um, so all of that, I think, is bound up together. Um, and, and it's part of a responsible, uh, certainly a responsible Catholic response, but I think a responsible human response to uh, the, the changes in uh, human civilization is to always ask, you know, what are what are we losing as we're, we're, we're gaining something, but what are we losing in the process? And how, how do we make sure that we don't lose anything essential to our humanity? Thank you, President.
1: Talk very okay. illuminating. Uh, having laid out a, some groundwork for thinking about social evil, I am I wonder to what extent you think um, arguments of natural justice only get us so far. You know, it, Standing outside the body of Christ, uh, even with, you know, McIntyre and arguments about how we're all dependent kind of rational animals born into networks of giving and receiving I might nonetheless think that I only have to do what natural justice requires. Right? Uh, if I wrong someone, I have responsibilities to him. But standing within the body of Christ, uh, you know, has a different situation. Uh, having heard the Sermon on the Mount, I come to realize that I have responsibilities to those I have wrong. Right? Or I don't have a natural claim on my goods, but I, I can't, you know, just leave it at at that having been you know, called to conform to Christ, I mean, Catholic social teaching has purchased for Catholics because we, well, you know, because because it, it's not simply a product of you know natural reasoning, right? It's it, it is in part you know, re- revealed to us, see? and I I think you can only recognize certain social evils under grace. Would you agree with that?
3: Uh, probably, but we might want to talk about specific ones. Um, I mean, I, I certainly agree that uh, the aid of grace uh, illuminates a lot more uh, than than natural reason. But in principle, natural reason can discern quite a lot, and. Honestly, most of Catholic social teaching is natural reason. Um, it, it's also biblical, but I mean, the principle of subsidiarity, the principle of solidarity, those are natural law principles. The idea of, com- of the common good, that's a natural law principle. Um, the, the idea that we are all, um, in principle, members of a community. Now, I think it's very hard but not impossible. I mean, the Stoics did it, to think of all human beings as part of a community. It's easier if you also think that we're all children of, of of God and that God has providence over us. Right. So, yeah, the Christian perspective, and in fact, I would say also any religious perspective, adds help to seeing human beings as members of a community that, that um, need to live well together. But... Um, I do think that in principle, a lot of the truths of Catholic social teaching, most of the truths of Catholic social teaching are philosophical truths and not theological ones.
4: Hi, thank you for the talk. Um, kind of in line with that um, and your first point about kind of a misunderstanding when using the term social justice. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts are about when evils are perceived as justice by the masses Um, per se, like your example with birth control. I mean, that's that's given out like candy. And, but we all, well, I don't know if we all, but I mean, I think uh, a lot of people here recognize that as an evil um, or something that definitely shouldn't be encouraged. While I think if I asked any random person at my college, they probably would say that um, justice would be giving women easier access to that. Um, So I was wondering what you think we should do about the terminology, um, or just any thoughts on this issue in general?
3: More Thomistic Institute chapters, I guess, (laughs) so people learn how to to talk about justice. I mean, this is is a part of what I mean by the confusion. Um, Everybody uses the word justice, but we clearly aren't meaning the same things by it. Um, And um, even if everybody meant by justice, something about the common good. Not everybody has the same understanding of what the common good is. Um, even if everybody has an understanding that the common good would fulfill human persons as persons, not everybody has the the same conception of what a human person is and what it is to be fulfilled. Um, this is, I mean, this is why McIntyre spends so much time exploring, um, the, the ways in which different kinds of moral discourse seem incommensurable with each other and incoherent, um, and not only foster certain patterns of living, but themselves are only make sense within certain patterns of living, right? So, you know, you, you could say um, uh, Nietzsche produces a kind of nihilism or atheism, or you could just say Nietzsche reflects it. Like, you don't get Nietzsche until you have a certain... Um, uh, cultural development in which Nietzsche could make sense, or you don't get Hume in, until you have a certain cultural development in which Hume could make sense. Um, I think McIntyre's is entirely right about that. So, your, to your question, how do you respond to that? There, it, it, it's both it's both um, it, theoretical and practical demand. Um, we have to help people better understand their situation, but helping them better understand their situation also means um, helping them experience what it is to be the social animal in a different way than they're already experiencing it. Um, And that might mean um, we ourselves have to make choices about how we relate to those people so that they can experience um, what it is to have a common good with others and what it is to to experience the intrinsic goods of distinctively human activity. And you know, I just described that on such a general level that it's totally useless to you because you don't <laughs> you you don't you don't know how to use that to go back to your friends on campus. I don't either. And every and that that's that's in one way though I think that is the challenge of the so-called new evangelism. Right? The new evangelism is making truths known to people but not not assuming that it's a matter of, of argument purely. Well, we'll use arguments, but it's also about finding the rhetorical ways in which it's possible to help people see truths that have been systematically hidden from them so far.
1: Hi, I was just wondering if you could say a little bit more about what you think uh, systemic racism might be. Um, so this is a very insightful talk, and that's a very sort of like hot-button issue. And so it would be nice to begin to think a little bit about what a helpful way to think about that might be.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would really recommend you um, look up Therese Corey's um, discussion of it. It's not an academic paper, although it has, it has some footnotes. It's on public discourse. Um, and, and it's part of a lecture that you can also watch on YouTube. But I mean, she takes the the pretty typical example of um, the, the uh, downstream effects of the history of redlining in a city, say, right? So um, presumably, it doesn't happen right now, it's illegal. But at one point, um, both banks and real estate agents effectively sort of prevented black people from having houses and getting loans in certain neighborhoods, right? Um, and you know that itself was presumably a manifestation of previous a previous history of um, unjust relations um, in the United States, but even just taking that um, that happened for long enough that it has you know it meant that um, in those cities and in general, right uh, white people were able to accrue wealth at a different rate than black people, so if, if they were already at a disadvantage. Um, black people, you know, are, have had that advantage, disadvantage, uh, exaggerated over time. Now, if you ask some people, okay, but like, this isn't anybody's fault today. There's nobody alive. Maybe, I don't know. I don't, I don't remember exactly when redlining was most, most common fifties and sixties, I think. Um, maybe there are still some people alive who are doing that, but like nobody in the room is guilty of that. Right. But, but maybe if you live in the city, it would actually help you understand why it is that maybe there is. Uh, a sense of um, resentment in one community, or why it is that this community might suffer some um, some uh, social deprivations that that another community doesn't, and think I'm not saying it's an obvious solution. Like I don't know, I don't, I don't claim to know what to do about it. But presumably, members of the city should be thinking over time: how could what, what steps could we take to somehow restore a sense of um, Commutative justice between members of the community, distributive justice um, ab- about the goods and resources of the community. Um, that's the kind of example that she uses, right? So there's not necessarily an obvious moral agent, but there is a there is a social phenomenon that perpetuates uh, a, an unjust arrangement that is um, reflected in race, race, racial differences, and so it makes sense to call it structural racism. I, I think that's pretty uncontroversial, right? What's the name of that person? Therese Corey, T-H-E-R-E-S-E, and her last name is C-O-R-Y.
2: Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks,